Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse number 5 through 9. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be frontlets between your eyes. And this is our verse for today. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. And so once again, that's our verse for today. Verse number nine, you shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Let's go, Lord, in prayer, and uh, then we'll get started, okay? God, we thank you for today. God, I'm thankful for technology. I'm thankful that even though we're not physically able to be together, that we're spiritually able to be together. And so I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for the use of Facebook and through cameras and audio and different things that we're able to be there with our people. And I pray you be with them. I pray you be with those in our church who are suffering from COVID. I pray that the recovery be swift. I pray that uh, their neighbors and loved ones will look on them. I pray us as their church would look in on them and ask them if they need anything. And I pray they would make that apparent if they do. God, I pray for the text this morning. I pray that the text would speak, uh, that I wouldn't add anything to it. I wouldn't try to take anything away from it, but I would just let the Word of God do what it's supposed to do. Uh, we pray for this Thanksgiving season. I pray as we gather together with our uh, jacked up families, as some of us are jacked up, all of us are jacked up, God, that you'll be with us. Help us to offer grace to those who we are with. Help us to always be mindful that some of these people, we only see them once a year, to be kind to them, to love on them, and to, that more than we share turkey and dressing, all these other things, we would share Jesus with them whenever we get the opportunity. And God, I pray you be with our church once again. Thank you for protecting us. Thank you for watching over us. Thank you for being good to CBC. We ask all this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. All right, so if you notice there, you know, we kind of talked through this uh, last week. Uh, we were talking about, uh, talking through how, you know, the biblical worldview, biblical mindset is, of course, whenever you look through uh, the frontlets, right? We're talking about that biblical worldview. We really walk through how God wants us to be either missionaries in some ways or he wants us to be monks in some ways. And so the big thing there was to remember that there are areas in our culture that we are called to be missionaries. There are things that we're called to take the gospel to those areas, things that we're supposed to be involved in uh, to change our city. And we'll talk a little bit more about that today. Um, you know, I firmly believe that more than anything, we need Christians in the workplace. We need Christians not only in our schools, but in the courthouse, in every area of society. You know, Christians need to be there serving the best they can uh, with the love of Christ and the love of their neighbor in mind. So I want to encourage you to remember that. And then also we talked about being monks. Uh, we talk about there are areas in our lives that we pull back from, right? So we pull back from culture. Maybe that's secular music. Uh, maybe that's the entertainment technology. Uh, we kind of shared some of those things with you last week, talking about how you shape your children's worldview. And so what you think is right, your kids automatically will think is right. What you think is wrong, your children will automatically think is wrong. And so do understand that you shape what your kids think, and how your kids interact with the world. So do get that, okay? So today we'll be looking at that doorpost of your homes and of your gates, right? So remember, at the time, whenever this was written to the Israelites, they're on the verge of going into the Promised Land. This is before they're going to cross the Jordan River there, and this is Moses' kind of last, um, last reminder to them. It's a great retelling of the law, him reminding them of who they are, whose they are, and where they're going, and why they're going there, and more than anything, what they should do when they get there. 
And so he's reminding them, it's kind of this checklist, right? This travel checklist, hey, you got this, got that. He's reminding them, do these things so it will go well with you in the land. And so you can read through this. You can kind of see he's laid out a lot of things. And here at the very end, though, he says, you should write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. So the Jews took this literally. Uh, the Jewish people, believe it or not, they took this literally in the sense where they would write this on their gates. Um, believe it or not, I've got a friend of mine who... He practiced Judaism, and uh, some of his family still does, and we go visit them. They have uh, scripture boxes, what I would call them. I don't know the exact name for them, on the door frames of their homes, up above in the corner, where they took this verse literally. Now, we in the New Testament, us Christians, we don't take this verse literally, but we take this verse to Hobby Lobby. And so we take this verse, and we go buy scripture uh, canvases and scripture verses. And as much as I'm telling you, we've got the pig, we've got the cow, and we've got both these fellows up in here. We've got verses all over our house. We've got, you know, Acts 2, 42 in our kitchen. We've got Matthew uh, 28 in there as well. We've got all these different phrases, all these different things, because we, the Christian uh, marketplace has really, really took advantage of, you know, this verse in some sense as well. Hey, take it literally. Put these verses on your houses. And more than anything, guys, when you think about taking these verses and putting them around your home, they're not meant to be decorative. More than they are to be they are to be reminded to remind you that we're Christians. We should have a Christian worldview that we are to read those words of God daily. Like if you've got verses in your home on your walls and you don't have the verses memorized, then they're kind of they've lost their purpose, right? They're just artwork, and that's not what God intended Scripture to be. God intended Scripture to be reminded to remind us. He intent, He wanted Scripture. He intended Scripture to be meditated on, so it changes us as we read it and think about it every day. So reading through this, it kind of reminds you of, you know, I thought about a very well-known verse uh, that many people probably have in their homes, a very, very misquoted verse, and a very, very commonly taken out of context verse, and I'm sure you know what verse it is. It's Jeremiah 29, verse number 11, right? Uh, we know that verse uh, more than any verse from Scripture. Uh, it's taken out of context where I know the plans I have for you. Uh, we know the verse. We're going to break down what he means there. And what Jeremiah is foretelling about the Lord and how he's reminding them of who they are, where they're at, and why they're there. So we're going to look at Jeremiah chapter 29. I want to remind you that Jeremiah is one of the longest books in the Bible. It's found in the Old Testament. It's a prophet, prophetic book in the sense where it's not something you're going to like get in your daily reading plan. Like, oh my goodness, I'm in Jeremiah today. Uh, it's not going to happen, right? Most biblical year, yearly studies die in Leviticus. And if Leviticus don't get you, Jeremiah's coming for you. Because it's a long book that has a lot of information, a lot of things. And if you don't understand the context, you'll miss it. Um, you know, I really try to remind our church that all the time. You know, it cannot mean something for us that it did not mean for them. It cannot mean something for us that it did not mean for them, um, because that's taking things out of context. Remember, you're removing it from the context of his end and saying, this is for me today more than it is for them, and that's not true. It's not how the Lord works. Um, now, we can draw things from it. We can get application from it, um, but as far as you taking and twisting God's word to mean something it didn't mean, that's not how it works. And so remember, uh, you know, Jeremiah is a prophet. He really reminds the Israelites, hey, judgment's coming. Babylon is coming. Babylonians are coming. King Nebuchadnezzar is going to come in, and he's going to take some of you away from Jerusalem. He's going to take some of you from Judah. And so sure enough, all this time that's going on, the people keep saying, Jeremiah, you're dumb. You're mad. You're a weeping prophet. All you do is cry and say, judgment's coming. They don't believe him, church. 
They think he's crazy. They go as far as, in some places, they go as far as even putting him in the stocks and saying, hey, you've lost your mind. You are crazy. You've lost your mind, Jeremiah. You don't have any idea what you're talking about. And so sure enough, as time goes on, though, God proves that his prophet is right, right? Because judgment comes. And so the Babylonians come in, haul off a lot of the royal family off to Babylon. This is one of the exiles, one of the deportations, if you would. And so we find in verse, in chapter 29, if you want to read it for yourselves, uh, if you've got a Bible, it should say Jeremiah's letter to the exiles. And so if you've got a Bible, it should say at the very top of 29. And this is him writing to them while they're in exile. He is still there in, Jer in Jerusalem, and he is writing to them to encourage them that, guess what? God has not forgot about you. That God is gracious, that God loves you, that God cares about you. And so we're going to pick up in verse number 4. I want you to listen to what happens here in verse 4. Pretty powerful text. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent in the exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So guys, think about that context of that. So God is taking credit here because it is God who did this. He's not saying, hey, the Babylonians came in and overtook you. He's not saying Nebuchadnezzar came in and stole the show. He is very, very honest here. And the Lord says, I have done this. And so how powerful is that, that the Lord uses Nebuchadnezzar in a pagan worshiping society like Babylon to accomplish his will? How powerful is our God? How sovereign is our God over the very nations? Even over the pagan nations, even though, you know, in this time period, Israel was known in a time where, guess what, every nation had their God. To think about our God is the God of all nations. Our God is the God of all the earth. He's not just the, you know, God of the Christians. He's the God of everyone. Why? Because all those other gods don't exist because they're idols, right? They're false. And so he says that I have sent you there. Look what he says, verse number five. This is shocking to these people. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take, take wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage that you may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city which I have sent you into exile. Once again, seek the welfare of the city which I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. So not only seek their physical well-being, the welfare, but seek their spiritual welfare, right? For it is the welfare, it is its welfare, you will find your welfare. So once again, when they benefit, when they do well, look what God says there, you will do well. So when the city's doing well, you will do well. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. And do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that you are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. So right here, you kind of see Jeremiah writing this letter, and this would take a long time to get there. He sends the letter through one of his brothers, though. You can see that there. He sends the letter by hand to this with his, one of his assistants, and sure enough, the guy gets there. You can imagine this royal family. You can imagine these people, these exiles, opening up this scroll, reading these words, and you can imagine they're shocked. They're probably thinking, hey, the Lord's going to deliver us. The Lord's going to take care of us. The Lord is going to redeem us. The Lord is going to restore us. He is for us, not against us. And you can imagine as soon as they read those letters in verse number five, you can imagine as soon as they read that, build houses, live in them, plant gardens. You can imagine like the, the despair of seeing those words. But I want you to notice here, church, the Lord had not forgotten about his people. The Lord never forgets about his people. Even in their darkest days, guess what? The Lord is faithful to his people. He never forgets about them. He is always 
in in the has them on his mind. He's always thinking about us. He's always for us. He's not against us. And there might be a times of life where the enemy whispers, you know, God's abandoning you. That's not true. That's a lie from the very pits of hell. And so looking there, I want you to notice some things that's going on. So God commands them. God wanted them to understand that they were going to be there for a long time. God says, hey, build houses. So they're going to be there for a long time. So invest in the community. He's saying, guess what? I want you to invest. I want you to build homes. I want you to make sure that you have a good place in the community you're in because you're going to be there a while. And not only that, but he says what? Plant gardens. So you think about planting gardens, and this is for us, is very strange for most of us in our church. I know we have a lot of millennials. We have a lot of younger people. But for a lot of our older people, you can remember that, you know, one of the first things you look for on a home place was not necessarily uh, there was shelter, absolutely, but next to it, there was water. There was some type of water source so that you could grow your own crops because, you know, you couldn't go to the store and get those things. And I know some of you are thinking, well, the way the food prices are, we're going back to growing our own stuff. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's not a green thumb that grows that produce. It's dirty knees, right? It's you getting in the land. It's you working the land. And at the end of the day, planting crops requires a lot of faith. Because a farmer can, can plant the crops, he can put the seeds, he can fertilize, he can run the tractors, the combines, he can do everything he can. But at the end of the day, it's the Lord who brings the harvest. And so this was an agricultural society where they depended on the rains. They depended on the rains in the spring, in the fall, they depended on the harvest. Their lives were built around that harvest. So when God says, hey, plant gardens, that really showed them, hey, not only do I want you to build homes there, but I want you to invest there. I want you to literally put seed in the ground. And this is the big thing we need to understand today, guys. This wasn't going to happen overnight. This was going to be a long season, a long process of them working and waiting, of them working and waiting, of them working and waiting. And so do understand that we live in a time where people don't want to work, and sadly, they don't want to wait. And those are two things you cannot detach from each other. They go hand in hand, right? They, they are a package deal. We've got to work and we've got to wait. Because, the, you know, I remember what one theologian said, most Christians are so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. That so many people are waiting around saying, I just want the Lord to come back. And we are to absolutely wait for the Lord to come back. We're to be watching, the Bible says. But the Bible also says we are to be working. We're to have a, a mindset like, you know, uh, the people in Nehemiah's day, when they were rebuilding the wall, you know, they worked with one hand and they kept a sword in the other hand, right? They were working and watching and waiting. They were looking at their back and looking at their wall. They were doing everything they could do to better their families, better their society, and better their city. And so think about that. And then he talks about Mary. He talks about Mary. He says, hey, I want you to marry. I want you to give your sons in marriage. I want you to give your daughters in marriage. So think about it. He says, I want you to have a family. I want you to have a family. I don't want you to, to shrink. I want you to multiply. I want you to get bigger and bigger. And guys, this is a theme you see out through the entire Old Testament. You think about when Israel was in bondage for 400 years in Egypt, they multiplied. You know, you think about the first commandments given to Adam and Eve, you know, be fruitful and multiply. You think about how that was given over and over again. God wants his people to increase, not only spiritually, but also physically. God, God, God longs for us to have families, to have children, and to have grandchildren, have generations of Christianity that is not passed down because of our genes, but passed down because of our witness. And so to be thinking about that, and ultimately he says what? Better the city. Be in the city, but be in the city and for the city, but be not of the city. So I think that's really important. So we are to be in it, we are to be for it, but we shouldn't be of it. So what do I mean by that? That means, you know, the Lord is saying here, he wants us to be in the city. So that means, like I said, we want to be in the workplace, we want to be in the school system, we want to be in the hospitals. 
Some of you thinking, you know, I want to be in a Christian vocation. Let me tell you something. Every vocation is Christian. Every vocation there is. You know, there's not, you know, well, pastors are called the full-time ministry. There's a sense where I am full-time ministry. But understand, we're all in full-time ministry. That we all are here in the Lord's army, so to speak. We are all a part of God's uh, economic plan of us filling the workplace. And I firmly believe that we as God's children, we as Christians, should be the best workers on the job. That we should be people who are telling the truth, who are working hard, who are rising up in leadership, where people see and ask us, hey, how do you do what you do? And we're able to witness them and say, the Lord is with me. The Lord's been good to me. Almost like, you know, you think about Joseph in Potiphar's house. He didn't go there and whine and cry. He worked his way up. Literally, he worked his way up because the Lord w was with him. And people noticed that. And so in the workplace, guys, some of you are thinking, I'm going to bow my head and not do anything. I'm never going to cause any, you know, I'm never going to uh, stick out for my faith. I'm never going to cause any tension. I'm not going to pray for my food. I'm just going to blend in. That's not what God would have for you. God would have for you to bring the light into the darkness. Some of you are thinking, well, you know, I'm in such a dark place, Pastor Nick. You don't understand. I'm in a job I absolutely hate. I'm surrounded by lost people all day long. Brother or sister, do you not realize the opportunity God's given you? That God has given you such a place to be light in that darkness. And so oftentimes the very place we're praying for God to get us out of is the very place God's put us in strategically so that we're, we will share the good news of Christ. Now I'm not saying you work for a company that does not have moral values uh, that are counter opposite to what you believe in. I'm not saying that at all. But at the end of the day, I'm afraid that many of us would follow our feelings more than we would follow our faith. And that's where I have a problem. Why? Because at the end of the day, you know, if you follow your feelings, you'll be disappointed. You will be. Your feelings change like you change underwear. We follow a faith that has never changed. We follow the Word of God that has never compromised, has never changed for generation upon generation. And so you think about that. Think about this phrase. We don't seek the good that the city wants, but we seek the good that the city needs. So we live in a crazy day and age where the city might be like, hey, I need this, I need that. And at the end of the day, they might not need those things because we have to do what the Lord wants us to do. But uh, to get kind of nerd out on I me, mean, some of you really get this reference, some of you won't, I apologize. But, you know, I think about uh, the Batman, the Dark Knight, I think about with Christian Bale. If you don't know the end of how the Dark Knight ends, you know, he says that amazing, beautiful phrase. He says, I'm whatever Gotham needs me to be. And so he says that phrase, and you think about that phrase, how powerful that is, that we are to be what our city needs us to be. If the city needs us to go help with the flood uh, down at the rivers, guess what? We are to get our boots on. We are to get our gloves on. We are to go down there and help sandbag. Why? Because those are our people. That's our city. Those are our neighbors that the flood water is going to come into. If the city needs us uh, to help give out food, guess what? We are to show up and do those things. But if it ever came a day, which it hasn't came this way in our city in our day and age, but if it do, did come around to the city want us to do things that go against the word of God, we would say we can't do that. And they might think, well, that's, this is what we need. And we know that the Word of God is what they need. And we have to uphold God's standards, right? And so you think about that. And I want to ask you that. Are you bettering the city? Are you bettering the workplace? Are you bettering the school system? And, you know, we might think in our day and age, once again, that we need to be a monk in our society, pull back from all those things. But I'm telling you guys, there's a lot more missionary opportunities than there are monks opportunities. And so I want to encourage you to get out there and be in the city. And then I love this as Jeremiah gets into the very close there of the last verse. Uh, he reminds them, guess what? They're going to be liars. They're going to be people who are false prophets. And you might think, well, that was back in that day. Guess what? This is in our day and age. This is in our day and age. There are false 
prophets. I think about even in our own area, even here in, in, in Kentucky and Tennessee, you might think false prophets are just those people preaching the prosperity gospel, and that's absolutely true. Those are false prophets. But there are also false prophets among us who are preaching political things. And uh, they are twisting uh, the church's doctrine with political doctrine, and they're twisting you know, this party with that party. And uh, I want to encourage you, that's not our fight. That's not our battle, so to speak. And uh, you know, we shouldn't do those things. We should not encourage people to vote one way or another. Uh, we should encourage people to, guess what? Vote what God wants you to vote for. Vote with Christian morals, Christian values, and not to vote any straight party. That's not how this works. Uh, we are to vote as Christians. We are to vote how God would have us to vote. And so, believe it or not, there are false prophets in our area who they swore them down. You know, this person was going to win the presidency. This person was going to lose the presidency. And they were very public about that. They said, I've got a word from the Lord. And they would say that all day long. They've got a word from the Lord. Let me tell you something, church. The Lord will not give you a word that contradicts his word. God won't do that. Like if you somebody says, I have a word from the Lord, and it contradicts what God has already spoken, then that person, by definition, is a false prophet. Why? Because God's word is always true, and that person is false. Because God doesn't lie, right? People do lie. God doesn't lie. And so how do we test and know if someone is a false prophet or a true prophet? Do the things to come true? And there are some camps that believe, guess what, that, that there are no more prophets. There are some camps that believe there are still are prophets. Uh, at the end of the day, the thing we have to remember is that if it contradicts God's word, it is a false prophet. And once again, God's not going to give you a word that goes against Scripture. I've had people look me dead in the face and say, God told me to get a divorce. Uh, and there was no other reason except that person was unhappy. Uh, and you know you know as well as I do, if you've been married long enough, you're going to go through seasons of happiness. You're going to go through seasons of great joy. You're going to go through seasons as well where you're, you're miserable at times because you're fighting and arguing. It's because one of you's being more fleshly than the other one. And I'm not going to lie, in my house, that's oftentimes me. Uh, and so there are times where we need to understand that marriage is not about your feelings. It's about a commitment. It's about a covenant. Now, of course, if there is alcohol and drugs, there's abuse, those are completely different circumstances. But in our day and age, it's all about people being happy. And, uh, yeah, I can could, I could say a lot more about that. I'm not going to get started. Y'all know my opinions about all that. So the thing you need to understand about this as well is America is not God's nation. It's not. And that's a big shocker in today's day and age. And people think, you know, that I'm, you know, saying something that's not true, but it's just the truth. You know, there is, it's not. Um, you know, do understand that all the nations are the Lord's, all the earth and the fullness thereof. But there's not one specific nation besides Israel. Uh, you could argue that's God's people, God's nation. God's people is no longer even Israel itself, but is guess what? The church. The church is God's people. Now, Israel has a part to play in that, absolutely, but the church is God's people. And so we need to remember that we are exiles. We are soldiers. I remind of what First Peter says to those who were, they remember in First Peter in that time period, they were under Roman occupancy still. Rome had an iron grip on them with Nero. Uh, Nero was gathering Christians and burning them at the stake. Um, it was often uh, told by historians that Nero in his garden would put Christians on spikes and cover them in oil and light them on fire as he walked in his garden at night. This guy was, he, he hated Christians, hated Christianity, hated everything about it. And so Peter writes to this church, and look what he says to them, Beloved, I urge you as soldiers and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against the soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Once again, he urges them as soldiers and exiles. So that when people speak bad about them, they can't. Because guess what? They see their good deeds. 
Because at the end of the day, the truth wins. The truth will set you free. The truth will win. And at the end of the day, people watch not what we say. They watch what we do. They watch what we do. And so you look at Jeremiah 29, uh, continue on, verse number 10. I know, y'all, y'all was wondering how I was going to get there. Let me get a sip of the old, old coffee real quick. Verse number 10, For thus says the Lord, When seventy years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. Seventy years. An entire generation of people. Seventy years. You think about the life expectancy of most Americans is in the 70s. So an entire generation to die, another generation to come up. For 70 years, then I will visit you and I fulfill you my promises and bring you back to this place. So what is God saying here? God's saying, guess what? After 70 years, I'm bringing you back. I sent you to Babylon. I sent you there because of judgment. I sent you there because you would not listen. I sent you there because you would not repent. Because once again, like we talked about last week, judgment begins at the house of the Lord. But look what he says in verse number 11. For I know the plans I have for you. You there is Israel in this context, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. So take this in context. This is God talking about his people, Israel, coming back to his promised land and God bringing them back and God reminding them, I know the plans I have for you. It's not for me and you. It's for Israel, right? I know the plans I have for you. Personal there. You is not you. You is Israel. Then we look at what he says, verse number 12. You know, many people don't, don't, they stop at verse number 11 and say, oh, that's my life first when it keeps going. Then you shall call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with your whole heart, with all your heart. Verse number 14, and I will be found by you. Guys, think about how beautiful that is. Not only, listen, listen to this, not only does God ask us to call out to him, but God promises us he will hear us. If that don't give you, like, I don't know what to tell you, like fire in your belly, I don't know what will, that the very creator of all the universe hears us. When we cry out to him, we cry out to him. Paul says, you know, we cry out at the Father. So we cry out to the Lord. He hears us, church. We don't have a God who's distantly far away. We have a God who's personal about the very details of our lives. I will restore your fortunes, gather you from all the nations, all the place where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I have sent you into exile. So God says, guess what? Like a, like a, you know, Jesus kind of talks about this a little bit in the New Testament. He talks about how like a mother hen would gather her flock. And this is kind of what you see from the Lord over and over again in Scripture. God wants to gather his people and wants to protect them and take care of them. Because at the end of the day, guys, uh, I'm reminded of what the psalmist says, you know, the, the watchman stands in vain if the Lord doesn't watch over the city. So what that means is, guess what? You can have the highest walls. You can have the, the nicest, you can have the biggest amount of dollars in the bank account. But the Lord doesn't watch over you. It's all in vain. And the Lord wanted to watch over his people. He wanted to redeem his people. He wanted to restore his people. He wanted to gather his people again. And so you know what's crazy? We know from biblical texts, we know from context, we know from historical records that God did this very thing. That 70 years later, guess what? God would bring his people back. That God would restore his people. We see this uh, with Ezra and Nehemiah. We see this with God doing the very thing he said he would do. Guys, you know why I'm a Christian at the end of the day? I would love to say it's because of this or that, but at the end of the day, I'm a Christian because the word of God is true. 
Because what God says is true. And you know it's true. Historical records prove that it's true. And so think about that, that every promise God has made has came true. Every promise. That there's not a page of Scripture that God has lied on. There's not a page in Scripture that God has not come to bear the full weight of what he said would happen. And this is why, you know, talking, looking ahead to Christmas a little bit, that's why it makes Christmas so startling, is God said it was going to happen, and it did happen. Exactly how it was going to happen. Craziness. So if this God, our God, is able to predict these events, then surely, shouldn't we trust this God? Shouldn't we give our lives to this Lord? Shouldn't we, at the end of the day, give everything we possibly can fathom or imagine to Him, knowing that this is the God we serve? This is the Lord that we love and that we serve. Because at the end of the day, all our hope is in Jesus. At the end of the day, all our hope is in the Lord. Because we need to understand that if God changes us, then God will change our families. And if God changes our families, he'll change our homes. And if God changes our homes, he'll change our neighborhoods. And if God changes our neighborhoods, he'll change our communities. And if God changes our, our communities, he'll change our cities. And if God changes our cities, he'll change our state. And if God changes our state, he'll change our nation. If God changes our nation, guess what? He can change the world. But it starts with me and you. It starts with me and you, moms and dads out there. It starts with me and you, grandpas and grandmas. It starts with me and you, singles. It starts with me and you. And you might say, Pastor Nick, what in the world does that have to do with family discipleship? Because I want you to understand that the neighborhood watch I'm talking about is not you reporting crimes. It's not you looking at your, your window, your window, looking at your, uh, you know, your blinds, looking out there, who's here, who's there? No, the neighborhood I'm watching I'm talking about is uh, we have two options as Christians. We can watch the world around us go into the very pits of hell. We can watch it fade away. We can watch it tear down itself. We can watch it self-destruct. And we can bat an eye at it. We can shake our heads, say, man, they're, they're, it's always been this way. It's always going to keep going that way. We can watch it happen. Or we can get out there and try to make something happen on the Lord's behalf. We can get out there and try to be a positive influence. We can get out there and try to make disciples. We can get out there and love people well. We can get out there and truly make a difference in our community. And at the end of the day, some of you have bought into the lie. The only difference you can make in your community is when you vote for one party or another. Some of you have bought the lie. The only difference you can make in the community is whenever uh, you know it comes time to give to this fundraiser, give that fundraiser. Well, I want to tell you guys, our God is so much in the details. You can make a difference in the community every single day. But you being a Christian in the workplace, but you being a Christian in the neighborhood. And I just want to tell you, as we begin to close this morning, at the end of the day, I think one of the most powerful weapons the church has yet to harness, outside the Holy Spirit, of course. Holy Spirit's absolutely the most powerful weapon we have. But outside that, I think the, the method the Holy Spirit uses very effectively that the church has forgotten for many, many years now is the power of hospitality. It is the power of having people in your home, having people around a dinner table, having people in our lives, in our neighborhoods, coming in our home and seeing that we're all broken, that we're all a mess, that all our kids are jacked up. And guess what? That God's grace is sufficient. That God's love is enough. That the Lord changes us slowly over time. He changes your eternity in a second, but guess what? He changes your life over the course of your life. It's called progressive sanctification, right? That none of us arrive when we get saved. Like you didn't get saved all of a sudden. Oh, Halo came down and you were changed and you were completely different. But I do believe that God gives you a new nature. And that new nature, guess what? Over time, shows itself. Over time, 
you're dying to yourself and becoming more like Christ. You know, me and uh, somebody were talking the other day um, about parenting because, once again, if you did not know, my wife is due in just a couple weeks. And the most difficult part about parenting is death to self. Is you have this human being, this tiny little human being who is completely dependent on you. He or she cannot feed herself, cannot clothe himself, cannot do anything, cannot go, I mean, go to the bathroom on themselves. They can't do anything. They're completely dependent on you and your love, your compassion, your grace. They're completely dependent. And so because of that, you've got to have death to self. You've got to choose you know, them over sleep. You've got to choose them over comfort. You've got to choose them over everything. And so, you know, when you've got multiple children, some of you know this better than I do, it's a lot of death to self. It's you, you know, giving in to them and giving less to yourself because guess what? That is the, the nature of the beast, so to speak. And so I do want you to understand that I firmly believe that the power of hospitality, this ability to bring people into our homes and to do life with them and to share the gospel with them, because at the end of the day, we're not sharing a meal together. We're sharing life together. And we're not just sharing life together, but we're not sharing it just for the sake of sharing life together. We're sharing it for the sake of having an opportunity to share the gospel with someone. Because it does no good for people to come in our homes and eat good food and see our families if we don't ever share the hope we have. If we never never share with them, hey, guess what? This is why our family is the way it is. This is why when, strat- when tragedy strikes, this is why when suffering is dumped on us in wave after wave after wave. This is how we're able to stand because we're not the ones standing. But Christ is holding us up. That's the good stuff, ladies and gentlemen. That's the stuff that truly, if you want to watch our neighborhoods change, I would ask you to pray to the Lord that he would give his spirit to you and more and more every day. That God's spirit will work in your life and he would change you from the inside out. If you want a better husband, pray for him, ladies. If you want a better wife, brothers, instead of running her down, guess what? Pray for her. And get in the Word together. Get on your knees together. Because I firmly believe God can do more in a nanosecond than we can do in a lifetime. And so I want to encourage you, instead of watching our neighborhoods go to hell in a handbasket, as some people say, I want to encourage you, let's watch our neighborhoods be reshaped in the human flourishing that God's designed by us truly building homes, by us planting gardens, by us marrying, by us truly being in the city, for the city, but not of the city. And I want to encourage you, church, we can do that. That's what God's equipped us to do. You know, there has never been a time like this time. It's never seen this dark, never seen this crazy and chaotic, but I believe the church was made for such a time as this, that we were made to shine brightest in the darkness. And I would encourage you to remember It's not your mission, it's not my mission, but it's our mission. It's his mission, and our family's on mission. You know, I'm not just called in full-time ministry, Emily's in full-time ministry, and guess what? Our family is on a mission as well, because that's what God's designed to be. So I want to encourage you to remember that, church, and remember that we are acorns and arrows, baby, oaks of righteousness, and the psalmist says, guess what? Blessed is the man who has children, they're like arrows in a quiver. And so I want to encourage you that we are truly, truly making and discipling and loving generation changers. Our, ch- our hope is in our children, that they will grow up and they will do the more change in their community than we ever could. 